Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. We have been studying the book of Exodus all semester. And what we have said is that Exodus is the true story that helps us to make sense out of our lives in this world. And tonight what Exodus is going to do is to help us make sense out of limits. Help us make sense out of limits. We, we uh, live in a culture where there is great resistance to the idea of limits and limitations. One of the worst things that you can do to someone is to tell them, you can't do that. You can't be that kind of person. You can't live that kind of life. You can't accomplish that dream. And, and yet here in this passage, uh, God keeps saying that. You can't do that. It's a passage, um, Exodus chapter 20, historically has been referred to as the Ten Commandments. And over and over again in this passage, we're going to see God keeps saying, you can't do that. You can't live that way. How do we make sense of that? It's a long passage. So what we're going to do is we're just going to dive right in. We're going to read it. Go ahead and read it, and then, uh, then we will unpack it together. Just a, a brief bit of context. Um, God has descended upon Mount Sinai in the passage that we're about to read. And Israel is um, gathered around the mountain. And that's, we're just kind of jumping in right in the middle of that action here. So Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth below, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And we're going to skip ahead to chapter 24. In between chapter 20 and chapter 24, God continues to give a bunch more rules and regulations for his people. And then we pick it up in chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, They beheld God and ate and drank. Since this is God's word and not mine, let's pray and ask for his help as we look at it tonight. Father, I do indeed ask for your help. We ask for your help that as we look at this passage, you would reveal yourself to us, um, that you would would reveal us to us, that we would rightly see ourselves. Would you, Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do and bring the dead to life? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at three things, three aspects of limits tonight. We're going to look at why we need limits, what the right limits do, and how God's limits are possible. So why we need them, what they do, and how they are possible. So first, why do we need limits? The first reason why we need limits is for flourishing. It's interesting to note in our culture, um, so many of our hero stories, so many of the heroes, the people, the characters that we love to admire are about um, characters who throw off limitation, who, um, who overcome limitations. A few weeks ago, we watched Finding Nemo with our children. And this is a story about throwing off limitation, right? Nemo has a physical disability. 
Um, he has a deformed fin. And the, and the quasi-villain at the beginning of the story is his father, who tells him, you can't be like other fish. You cannot do the things that other fish do. And the story revolves around him proving his father wrong. He rebels. He leaves the safety of the reef to prove his dad wrong. He gets kidnapped, which seemingly confirms his dad's suspicion um, that he is not like other fish, that he is too weak to fend for himself. And, and the story is about how Nemo proves him wrong. He overcomes the limitations of his deformed fin. He overcomes captivity. He reunites with his father. He proves his toughness. He proves his resolve. We love stories like this, right? Zootopia is, is the same way. If you've seen Zootopia, it's about a character who is throwing off limitations it's about a, a little bunny who lives in, a, in a, a world of all animals, and she dreams of being a police officer in the big city. But everyone says, you can't do it because you're female and because you're a bunny. You're too weak. You don't have what it takes. You're not tough enough. You're not strong enough. All of our sports movies, for those of you who like sports, all of our sports movies follow this same storyline. They're all about underdogs. Rudy is a story of a little guy who's too small to succeed on the football field, but he's overcoming limitations. Uh, Hoosiers is the same way. It's a story of, of a basketball team that is too poor and too rural to compete with the schools from the big cities. There's no way they'll ever win a state championship. The real life story of the Chicago Cubs is about a team that is so inept for so long that they could never win a championship. And, the, and yet last year they did it, right? And, and the whole nation celebrated, except for St. Louis Cardinals fans, because they hate the Cubs. But uh, these are the stories that we love to celebrate in our culture. People throwing off limitations, despising, rebelling against limitations, fighting to overcome them. We love these kinds of stories because one of the things that we think is that part of what it means to be fully human is to be totally independent of limitation. Part, this is what we think, that part of what it means to be fully human is to have complete freedom, complete autonomy, to choose the life that we desire. And so, the worst thing that you can do to someone, like we already said, is to tell them, you can't do that. You can't live like that. To limit them, it's an insult to their humanity. It's an act of hatred against them. Here's the problem with that. Not all limitations are bad. Not all limitations are bad. In fact, we actually can't live, we can't flourish without limitations. I know I'm going to say his name incorrectly, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Atul Gawande. He is a Harvard professor. He's a doctor. He's a surgeon. He's a public health researcher. He has devoted most of his professional career to researching and finding out what does it mean to be human? and then applying that knowledge to uh, medicine and to public health. And this is what he said. He said, we sometimes think of autonomy as free action, living completely independently, free of coercion and limitation. This kind of freedom is a common battle cry in our culture, but it is a fantasy. It does not exist. Now, why? Why would he say that it is a fantasy? The reason he would say that is because some limitations are necessary for flourishing. Some limitations are required. They set the boundaries for flourishing. Think about it this way. If you want to be healthy physically, if you want to flourish physically, you're going to have to set some limitations for yourself. 
you're gonna have to say, you know what? I'm gonna eat a little bit less Domino's, a little bit less Chick-fil-A at RUF, and a little bit more salad. I'm gonna sit on the couch a little bit less and I'm gonna exercise a little bit more. You're gonna have to limit yourself with what you put into your body, what you eat and what you drink and how you spend your time, right? You're gonna to have to limit yourself in order to flourish physically. If you wanna flourish academically, academically you're gonna to have to do the same thing. You're gonna to have to say, okay, I'm gonna play, play less video games, I'm gonna watch less YouTube, I'm gonna watch less Netflix, I'm gonna party less, I'm gonna go out less, I'm gonna study more. If you want to flourish academically, you're gonna to have to limit yourself in certain ways. If, uh, if you want to flourish romantically, if you want to flourish romantically, you're going to have to limit yourself, right? If there's a person that you like or love and, and you want them to know that and you want that relationship to flourish, you're going to have to limit yourself. You're going to have to stop looking around for other options and say, you know what? I'm only going to be with this person. If you want that relationship to flourish, you're going to have to limit yourself. If you want to, limit, if you want to flourish financially, you have to create a budget. Limit your purchases. You're going to say, okay, I love shoes, which I do. I love shoes. I'm going to have to buy fewer shoes and more groceries. I'm going to have to go out. I don't, I don't need to go out for dinner every night. I should probably eat a bowl of cereal every once in a while in my apartment. Right? You're going to have to create a budget and stick to it. You're going to have to limit yourself because some limitations are necessary for flourishing. That's one of the reasons why we need Limitations is because it, it helps us to flourish. The other reason why we need it is because it is for love. We need them for flourishing. We need them for love. Um, since some limits are necessary for flourishing, setting the right limits is not an act of hatred. It's actually an act of love. Setting the right limits is not an act of hatred. It's, it's actually an act of love. I, I heard a story recently. I like to listen to the Moth podcast. Do we have any Moth listeners out there? Yeah? Okay, good. You guys are all the cool people in the room. Um, there's only four of you. The rest of you aren't cool. Um, that was a joke, by the way. You can laugh at that. Thank you. Thank you, Shai. Uh, so I heard a story um, recently on the Moth podcast about this guy named Greg. And when Greg was 12 years old his parents got divorced. And when they got divorced, sort of everything changed in his world and they were very busy and preoccupied. And so he really didn't get very much attention from his parents. And his mom thought it would be a good idea for him to spend a lot of time with his dad. And his dad thought it would be a good idea for him to basically take no interest in his son's life whatsoever. And so um, what Greg experienced was like, when I got to hang out with my dad, he would just take me to the bar and take me to the strip club. He didn't make me go to school. And I was basically on my own from the age of 12 on, where I was making choices and making decisions for myself. And as he's sharing his story, he's talking about how great he thought this was. Like he was living every 12-year-old kid's dream. He was, he was eating pizza and hamburgers for every meal. He talks about how he drank three liters of soda every day. And he didn't go to school, and he would sleep until noon. Like, he just did whatever he wanted, and it was amazing. And when he would interact with his friends, whose parents were somewhat strict, like a friend would say, oh, I need to check in with my parents, or, oh, I need to be home by midnight, he, was be, he would just be like, why do you put up with that? Like, why do you let your parents do that? He didn't have any grid for rules or limitations in his life. And everything changed when he was 14. Because when he was 14, he got into a new high school, and it was a magnet high school for performing arts, and he met a new friend. And this new friend lived in his neighborhood, and so they would carpool to and from school all the time. 
And when this friend would pick um, Greg and his buddy up, or when this friend's dad would pick him up from school, he would start asking his friend all these questions. Hey, how was your day? What happened at school today? Um, do you have any homework? Have you done your chores? You know, like, and Greg was always like, dude, your dad is a control freak. Like, what's wrong with him? Why do you put up with this? And so, um, and, and he sort of went on with this for a long time where he was like, I don't understand your dad. Like, how do you live under this kind of roof? Until one day, Greg got invited over to spend the night with his friend. And Greg gets invited over to spend the night with his friend. And so they come home from school together. And the first thing that happens is um, uh, Greg's friend's mom is waiting for them inside the house with snacks for them after school. And he's like, oh, man, this has never happened before. This is kind of cool. I kind of like this. And they eat their snacks. And she's like, okay, it's time to go do your homework. And he's like, homework? I've never done homework before. And they go upstairs and they work on their homework for a couple of hours. And then... After a couple of hours, they finish their homework and Greg's mom comes up, or not Greg's mom, Greg's friend's mom comes upstairs and is like, hey, dinner is ready. Wrap up your homework and come downstairs for dinner. And they all come downstairs for dinner. And there at the table is a place just for Greg, with a meal just for Greg, which is a brand new experience for him. He'd never experienced that before. And so they all sit around the table together and eat dinner and they're asking each other, like, how was your day? And how's this thing going? And what's going on in this part of your life? And Greg is just like, this is so strange. What universe am I living in? And then after dinner is over, Greg and his buddy go upstairs to play video games. And he had never played video games before. Because ever since he was 12, he had to work in order to have money to get food for himself. And so he was playing video games for the very first time. And they play video games. And he says, everything changed at 9.45 p.m. that night. Because my friend's dad walked upstairs and he poked his head inside the door of the room where we were playing video games. And he said, lights out in 15 minutes, wrap things up and get ready for bed. And Greg said, I didn't know what was happening, but my eyes started to well up with tears. And he's trying to hide it from his buddy. And so they go, um, they go into the bathroom to get ready for bed. And there in the bathroom is a toothbrush just for Greg. Somebody had taken the time to find a toothbrush just for Greg so that he could brush his teeth, which was not something that he did every night, nor was it something that he did every day. And he's trying to hold back the tears. And so eventually they go into his friend's room to get ready and to go to bed. And at this point, Greg is sitting on the bed sobbing. And he's like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Why am I crying? Like, why am I having this reaction to what's going on right now? And he looks at his friend, and this is what he said. He said, do your parents act like that all the time? And his friend is like, yeah. And Greg asks, does your dad tell you to go to bed every night? And he's like, yeah. And then Greg looks at his friend and he says, can I stay tomorrow night? And his friend says, yeah, actually, they said you can stay any night that you want to. And then Greg says, I stayed there almost every night for the next three years. And he's reflecting on that experience. And this is what he says. He says, their rules became my rules. Their punishments became my punishments. And as I grew older, I realized that those rules, that routine, that structure, there was value in it. There was love in it. They loved him enough to give him limits. 
and he'd never experienced anything like that before, and it melted him to tears. See, I love my children, and that is why I do not let them play in the street. If one of my children came to me and said, Daddy, please, I, you know, I'm getting cabin fever, it's winter, I need to go outside and run around, I'm just going to go play in the street. We live at the corner of 85th and Broadway, and if, if one of my children went out and said, I want to go play in Broadway, um, it would be incredibly unloving for me to be like, you know what, you do you, man. You do you. Right? That would be so unloving. Why? Because there's danger lurking for them on Broadway. If not death, then significant injury. And so limiting them in that way is because I love them. And so I, no, 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 you can't do that. Let's go to Central Park instead, right? Because I love them. See, setting the right limits is an act of love. We need the right limits in order to flourish. And setting those limits is an act of love. Now, what do God's limits do? What do they do? How is it that they are actually loving? To put it uh, succinctly, the right limits invite us into freedom. The right limits invite us into true freedom. See, we think in our culture that, that freedom and flourishing um, is the absence of all limits, is the, is the throwing off of all restriction. But, but re- in reality, um, true freedom and true flourishing happens in the presence of the right limits and the right uh, restrictions. Think about it this way. You can't have the freedom of driving a car if you put orange juice. I know you guys live in New York City. You don't drive cars, but just go with me, okay? You can't have the freedom of driving a car if you put orange juice in the gas tank because that's not what it's made for. It's not how it works. You can't have the freedom of a healthy body if all you eat is fried chicken and Coca-Cola. It's not what you were made for. Like you actually have to put gas in the gas tank. You have to put vegetables in your body in order to flourish, in order to be free. You need the right restrictions in order to be free. And what the Ten Commandments do is they are the necessary restrictions, the necessary conditions for true freedom and true flourishing. Now, we don't have time to go through each one of the Ten Commandments, so I'm just going to talk about two of them. We're going to talk about the Tenth Commandment and the Seventh Commandment very briefly. The Tenth Commandment. How is the Tenth Commandment a necessary restriction that leads us into true freedom, that invites us into freedom? The Ten Commandment says, do not covet. Do not covet. Now, why does that matter for us here in New York City? That matters for you because you live in a giant outdoor mall. That's what New York City is. I don't know if you knew that. Um, But you live in a giant outdoor mall, and everywhere that you go, there are billboards and storefronts and advertisements. Like, you cannot get away from it. And you can't spend even a day in New York City without occasionally feeling like, I am insufficient. My life is insufficient and incomplete because I don't have the clothes from that store. I don't have the body on that billboard. I don't have the food in that restaurant. I don't have fun with that type of friend. You you can't spend much time in New York City without feeling that way. And and what this commandment is doing is it's inviting us to be free from that constant and crippling worry that my life is insufficient and that I can't be happy unless I have that. That's what the commandment to, um, to not covet is doing. Because it's both a promise and an invitation. See, it's a promise that God has actually given you everything that you need. 
that, that nothing that you need is being withheld from you. There's a promise embedded in the Tenth Commandment, and that's it. But there's also an invitation in the Tenth Commandment to not always be calculating and longing for the next thing. To know that your happiness is not tied to what's out there. There's, there's great freedom in that. It's an invitation to the freedom of contentment. That's the 10th commandment. Now, the 7th commandment says, do not commit adultery. Now, how is that an invitation to freedom? Uh, We live in a culture that says you can't be happy unless you have sexual fulfillment. That you are somehow slightly less human, slightly less of a person if you don't have the number and the type and the variety and the frequency of sexual experience that you desire, and guess what that is not? It's not freedom. It's not freedom. Because if that is your paradigm for life, what that means is that you are only as happy as your sexual success. Your happiness is is tied to your sexual experience and you are only as happy as those experiences allow you to be. And the seventh commandment is an invitation to live freely. To not have your happiness tied to your sexual success. Why? How how is the seventh commandment doing that? It's doing that because it's limiting what sex is and who it's for. It's saying sex is a beautiful and good and sacred thing for husbands and wives, but actually outside of that boundary, it's destructive. Now, I know that we resist that idea hard in our culture, but here's how, here's how we know it's true. Because every year, there are movies and television shows about friends with benefits, this arrangement of friends with benefits. And in all of those stories, something goes wrong. It never ends well. Someone develops feelings, things get complicated, someone gets, gets hurt. It, it never ends well. This is why the walk home after a hookup is so awkward. And not just awkward, but if we're really honest with ourselves, it's lonely and it's painful. And it's why we get so mad and so distraught when that person does not return our texts. Because when the boundaries, when the limits of sexual activity are violated, we hurt. And the seventh commandment invites us to live free of the need for sex to be happy. And all of the commandments do that. They all do that. The commandment against lying is inviting you into the freedom of living with integrity, of living in the truth honestly, of not always having to be calculating what you think others are thinking, and then massaging the truth either about you or about other people or about a particular situation in order to make your life go well. It's inviting you into the freedom from that. The commandment against murder is inviting you into the freedom of forgiveness, of not having to harbor anger and bitterness towards those that that wrong you of not having to make them pay for what they've done. The commandment to keep the Sabbath is inviting you into the freedom of rest, of not having to work and study as though your life and your happiness depended upon it. These are the limits, the right limits that are inviting you into freedom. And here in the Ten Commandments, God is giving us the parameters in which we were created to flourish, to be happy, to be free. But here's the problem. 
Simply stating those commands does not actually empower us to do them. Simply stating them uh, does not create the freedom that they invite us into. So thirdly, how are these limits possible? How are God's limits possible? You may have noticed that a couple of times, somewhat naively, uh, God's people, particularly in chapter 24, verses 3 and verse 7, they take in all that God has commanded of them. And then they say, yeah, we can do that. We got that covered. Did you notice that? Verse 20, 24, verse 3, and verse 7, they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do, which is kind of a silly thing to say, to bind yourself that rigidly, right? They could have said, well, we promise that we will try really hard. We promise that uh, we will obey most of the time. But no, that's not what they do. They say, we will do it all, and we will do it faithfully, which is, of course, what God desires. So they say that, and then Moses does this very strange thing in verse 8 of chapter 24. He sprinkles them with blood. Did you notice that? That's an odd thing to do. That's an odd thing for us. It's actually not very odd for them. The reason it wasn't odd for them is we live in a written culture, and they lived in an oral culture. And so when you are um, creating a contract or a covenant in an oral culture, a binding agreement, the way that you ratified that was not by signing your name on a piece of paper. That's what we do in our culture because we live in a written culture. So when you sign a lease on a new apartment, nobody sprinkles blood on you. You write your name on a piece of paper and then you move in, right? That's all that's needed. But they don't live in a written culture, so that's not what they do. Uh, They live in an oral culture. And so what you do to ratify a covenant or a contract in an oral culture is you act out the penalty for breaking that covenant. And that's what's going on here. So God comes to them in Exodus 19 and 20, and he says, listen, I love you with an everlasting love. I treasure you. You are mine. I have rescued you. Now, keep my commands. God says, this, this is my end of the bargain. I have loved you, and I will always love you. You are my people, and I will be your God. That's my end of the bargain. And your end of the bargain is, keep my commands. And the people say, okay, we can do that. And that's the contract. That's the covenant. And then Moses starts sprinkling blood on everybody. And what he's doing is he's saying, listen, this is how we ratify the covenant. See, in the Old Testament, we see this in a couple of other places. When you're, when you're creating a contract, what they would do is they would maybe take an animal... And they would cut that animal into pieces. And then they, both parties of the contract would walk through the covenant. And basically it was a way of symbolizing, if I break my word, if I do not say what I'm promising, if I do not do what I'm promising to do, may it be so with me. May I be split into pieces. And so when the people say, we will obey, we will keep everything that you command, and Moses is sprinkling blood on them, they're saying, may it be so to us. May our blood be shed if we do not keep our word. And then something amazing happens. Moses sprinkles blood on them. And then Moses and the leaders of Israel go up the mountain to see God. And it says they eat and they drink with him. Now, what does that mean? In ancient cultures, um, to eat and drink with someone was the ultimate act of hospitality. It was an ultimate act of fellowship and friendship and intimacy and acceptance. Now, how can God do that? How can God invite these people to his table and accept them intimately. Because if you know anything about the story of the Old Testament, you know that these very people do a very terrible job of actually keeping the limits that God sets. They are constantly wandering to other gods and other nations, 
looking for fulfillment and peace and happiness outside of God. They break every single commandment repeatedly and sometimes defiantly. And yet God welcomes them into his presence. He knows they will fail him catastrophically and he invites them to his table. Now, how does he do that? Centuries later, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus lifted up a cup and said something to a group of people who were saturated in the book of Exodus. They knew these stories backwards and forwards. And this is what he said to them. This, he holds up the cup and he says, this is the blood of the covenant. In other words, he's saying, this is the sprinkled blood. Now, Christians say this every time they celebrate the Lord's Supper. Every time Christians celebrate the the Lord's Supper, they say, this is the cup of the new covenant in his blood. Now, whose blood is that? It's Jesus's. On that night, he knows that he's about to go to the cross the very next day, and he is telling them and he is telling us, you could never keep all of the words of the law. You could never live. You have not lived within the limits that I have set for you. You have broken the covenant. And yet, it is not your spilled blood that will bring you into God's presence and bring you to his table. It is my spilled blood that will bring you into God's presence I will die so that you don't have to. I will be cast out of God's presence. Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's being cut off. He's being cast out of God's presence so that we can be drawn in and invited into the table to be with God. Do you know what that means? That means, that means that it is his love that empowers our obedience and not our obedience that enables his love. It's his love that empowers our obedience and not our obedience that enables his love. Notice that when Israel gathers around Sinai, right in the very first verse of chapter 20, before God starts giving them the Ten Commandments, before he gives them any rules, what does he say? Chapter 20, verse 1, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. In other words, you've already been rescued. You already belong to me. I've already set my love on you. There's nothing else that you can do that can disqualify you from that. In other words, the rescue comes before the rules, not after the rules. And oftentimes we we flip the order. We flip the order in Christianity, but this is not what Exodus shows us. This is not actually how Christianity works. But we tend to think that I must live a certain way, I must be a certain kind of person in order for God to accept me and love me and welcome me in. But it's not I obey and therefore I'm accepted, but I am accepted and therefore I obey. Now we talk about this a lot in RUF, we've talked about this a lot this semester. And the reason this is so important, the reason we talk about it so much is because if you reverse the order, then you lose Christianity. If you reverse the order, then it ceases to be Christianity. The Apostle Paul, in, in Romans, the letter to the Romans in the New Testament, he says, the kindness of God, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Did you catch the order there? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. But it's, it's very subtle, uh, the way that Christians, the way that we often reverse this order. Because we often function as though it's our repentance that leads to God's kindness. Now, here's how I know that. Because when you sin, 
and when you struggle and when you fail to live within the limits that God defines and you know it, most of us have one of two reactions, determination or despair. Determination says, uh, says, I will never do that again. And despair says, how could I? But both of those are wrong. Both of those think and are acting as though repentance is what is going to lead to God's kindness. Because determination says, if I work hard enough, then God can love and accept me again. That I can't feel like I'm okay with God until I work hard enough, until I beat this thing, until I fix it. I can earn his trust. I can show him I'm serious. Then he can accept me. And despair says, if I feel bad enough for long enough, then God can love me again. If I feel bad enough for long enough, if I show him that I am really, deeply, sincerely sorry for what I've done, then he can accept me. And both of those are assuming that God has rejected you because of your sin and no longer accepts you. But... The good news of the book of Exodus is that the rescue has already occurred. His kindness has already been placed upon you. He rescued you before you lifted a finger. He rescued you and loved you before you tried to keep the rules or before you despaired over breaking them. Great theologian J.I. Packer puts it this way, and we'll close with this. He says, there is tremendous release in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst things about me, so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself. Nothing I do can quench his determination to bless me. It's the kindness of God. That leads us to repentance. You will never find freedom. You will never find flourishing within the limits that God sets until you realize that. You'll never be able to obey him with joy until you realize that he has already set his love on you. That he has already shed his blood for you. And that nothing you do can quench his determination to bless you. Do you know that?